Well, good morning to everybody. Happy almost New Year. Glad to have you here today. And uh, as Pastor Rick said, I'm glad myself to be here today. Friday night, uh, my oldest got the stomach bug, and uh, I got to be up with him, you know, like every hour for a number of hours in a row. And so then you you get past that first day, and you're just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, like, who's going to get it next? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be someone else? Is it going to be nobody? Uh, and so luckily the shoe did not drop, at least last night, so we're, we're celebrating that and we'll, we'll take every day for what we can get, but uh, glad to be here today uh, to be able to speak this message uh, for you guys. So I know that it is uh, football season, big Penn State win yesterday, and uh, I saw the jersey in the back, the Eagles clinging to hope here, we're clinging to hope today, we're going to see what happens with all of our backups in today. So I know it's, it's football season, it's not baseball season, but uh, are there any New York Yankees fans in the room today? Or maybe more likely, are there any New York Yankee despisers in the room today? It's probably more of us in that category, and if I'm honest, that's probably where I fall as well. I don't, I don't love that teams can just go out and buy themselves championships, but... But there is no debating that when you look at the franchises in baseball, that the Yankees are clearly one of the best franchises of all time, and that they've had some of the best players who have ever played the game. And there's a great quote from one Yankee Hall of Famer, catcher Yogi Berra, that says this. He says, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. (laughs) Now, one of the things that Yogi Berra was famous for outside of baseball was saying things that really make absolutely no sense whatsoever. And so while I'm not really sure exactly what golden nugget of wisdom Yogi was trying to offer us when he shared that quote with us, there's one thing that I do know related to forks in the road, and that's that each of us will come to a fork in the road in our relationship with God. And this fork gives us two roads to choose from as to how we will relate to God. And the choice that we make speaks a lot to who we believe that God is and what we believe that God wants for us. But before we dig into that, before we go a whole lot further, uh, here's where I want to start. I want to start by talking about hiding. And I wonder how many of you, if you think back to your childhood, have a, uh, a funny or maybe slightly embarrassing story uh, about hiding. I was trying to come up with a funny story from my younger years uh, about hiding, and if you know me at all, you can probably guess that I am not one of those, like, participate in a lot of shenanigans type of people. <laughs> Uh, even as a teenager, I myself was a little too concerned with how the person on the other end of the shenanigans would feel, as I was on that end of shenanigans from time to time. Uh, so I really was too concerned with that to get myself into too much, too much trouble. But I do remember playing hide-and-seek with my sister uh, at different times as a child. And we grew up in a decent-sized house. It was a, a rancher, but it had a full basement, and so there were lots of really good hiding spaces. And I remember sometimes it took us a long time to be able to find each other. Well, when I was starting to grow impatient with trying to find my sister, uh, I had a go-to. As little kids, what is the absolute funniest topic that you can talk about in any form or fashion? Potty humor, right? Potty humor of, of some form or fashion, anything related to the potty, related to butts, related to underwear, anything like that, right? Hilarious. And apparently this doesn't change from generation to generation because my kids are exactly the same. Anyone else's kids super into potty humor? All of us, right? Anyways, when I felt like I was getting close to finding her, but I'd been looking for a long time and I was kind of stuck, 
I had a go-to, and my go-to was that I would just start to shout ridiculous potty humor comments over and over again. So, like, I remember shouting things like, little lion underwear, or like, poopy purple polka-dotted pantyhose, and eventually enough of these comments strung together would get my sister to crack, and she would start laughing, and voila, I figured out where she was, game over, round over, and then I could go and hide, and then she would try to do the same to me. But eventually, she built up enough of a resistance so that my comments were no longer effective, uh, and so that strategy ended up being fairly short-lived. But hiding, when you're a kid, hiding as a game can be fun, right? But it doesn't take us too many years to begin to implement hiding for other purposes. As grown-ups, what do we do when we've done something wrong? How do we typically respond when someone confronts us regarding sinful behavior? We hide, don't we? We lie to others. We ignore God. We do whatever we can to hide our sin and to hide ourselves. And it turns out that this hiding thing is kind of hardwired in us. We're going to look at the very first instance of sin and the reaction that accompanied that sin from Genesis chapters 2 and 3. We're going to start with verse 15 in chapter 2. Feel free to follow along on the screens. It says, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, no, we may eat from fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, for, and you must not even touch it, because if you do, you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And you probably caught it, their reaction to their sin, right? They hid. Now granted, today our hiding may be a little bit more sophisticated. We don't cover ourselves up with fig leaves. In fact, I was kind of wondering if anyone knows how large fig leaves even are. It's kind of curious how precarious this fig leaf situation really was. But just as Adam and Eve hid in response to their sin, so do we, right? But why? Why do we do it? We see it in verse 10. I was afraid, so I hid. We hide because of fear. See, one of the most damaging and paralyzing side effects of sin is fear. And fear messes with our relationships, both with people and with God. Because of our sin, we fear that we are actually unlovable, that we are unworthy of being loved. And that fear drives a wedge in our relationships. And so instead of being honest about our shortcomings, we hide. 
But unlike when we were kids, today we hide in plain sight. We hide behind a mask, and not a literal mask. In fact, if you see someone in a literal mask and it's not trick-or-treat night, you should probably run far away because something bad is probably about to happen. No, we hide behind a mask that is a a facade. We, We create a false representation of who we are, and we present it to others because we believe that if they saw the real us, that they wouldn't love us. The mask we choose to wear, the facade we choose to hide behind is whatever we believe will guarantee our acceptability to others. But the result of wearing that mask is that no one, not even the people who we love, not even the people who we are closest to, no one ever gets to see our true selves. And that is one of the absolute loneliest existences that we can live, an existence where no one truly knows us, where we're left to deal with the sins and the struggles that put us behind that mask in the first place alone. And to add to that challenge, the longer that we wear a mask, the harder it is to take off. It almost becomes a piece of us. We get so used to presenting ourselves in this fake way that we almost don't even know who we really are anymore. Again, this hiding began in the Garden of Eden, and as an outsider looking into this story, it's actually kind of comical, isn't it? Because God calls out to ask Adam where he is, as if God didn't know, right? It's like you're playing hide-and-seek with a child, and like the second you open your eyes, you see them because their hiding spot is so bad, but even because of that, or even despite that, you're like, where are you, right? And so Adam's, or God's almost being to Adam, Adam, where are you? And Adam replies, says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God says, who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And here we see the steps to the masquerade, a sin, and then a feeling of exposure, and an overwhelming fear of being found out, and our natural reaction to hide. The book True Faced by Bruce McNichol, he says this about the eternal implications of Adam and Eve's actions. He said, that day, all humanity learned how to look over our shoulders, how to glance stealthily, how to say one thing and mean another, how to hide fear, deceit, and shame behind a thin smile. That day, we learned how to give the appearance that we are someone other than who we actually are, and gradually, we lose all hope that we can change or be fixed. And so we cover up, and we put on a mask, and we begin bluffing. So let's talk about a few of the different masks that we have a tendency to wear, and I want you to think about what mask is it that you might wear. The first one is the doing just fine mask. (laughs) I have a feeling all of us wear this mask from time to time. Conversations for people wearing this mask often go something like this. Like, hey man, how you doing? I'm doing fine, just fine. Never been better. How about you? Me? Well, um, uh, yeah, I'm doing fine also. Yep, I'm doing all right. Hey, how are your your wife and kids? My wife and kids? Um, Awesome, of course, right? Yeah, things things are good, sure. (laughs) How many other words can we come up with for fine, all right, good, right? Now, granted, surely there are times when things are going fine, when... Things do feel awesome with our spouse or with our kids. But if we're honest, there's also other times where we are riding the struggle bus with our spouse, right? And we are just totally at a loss 
for how to parent our kids, or there's times where we feel trapped at work with no way out. And what we're really thinking on the inside, our inner dialogue during this conversation, looks more like you have no idea who I am. Nobody does. Not even my spouse. I'm surrounded by family and friends, but they don't know me. Every time I enter a room, I posture and I position. Sure, I can make small talk. I can even engage in deep, meaningful discussions from time to time, but the person you see is not me. And the real me frantically operates the levers behind the mask, just like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. I leave almost every encounter desperately alone and feeling deeply unknown. And maybe you can relate to that dialogue or relate to that mask. But if that's not your mask, how about the second one? The magic pill mask. (laughs) Those who wear this mask go from book to book, from church to church, from prayer to prayer, from song to song, from relationship to relationship, from purchase to purchase, all in pursuit of that one thing, that next big thing that they believe will provide them a better life. On the outside, they say things are good, and they even come across as mostly optimistic, but on the inside, And as you watch the way that they live, as you watch the decisions that they make, it's clear that they are desperate to find that magic pill that they think will make everything better. If you could listen in on their inner dialogue, it might sound something like this. Like, I just can't seem to find the satisfaction that I want. There's got to be something out there that I could add to my life that would fix this feeling. And so they keep searching for the next thing, and they keep trying the next thing, and they're looking for something on the outside instead of looking inward and dealing with the pain, instead of going through the effort to change what's going on in there. And so after many failed attempts at finding the magic pill, fear and disillusionment creep in, and they start to wonder, like, what's wrong with me? Nothing I try works. Maybe I just don't deserve to be happy. Maybe I'm just doomed for a life of scraping by and missing true joy and satisfaction. Maybe I'm not worthy enough of true joy and satisfaction because of who I am and what I've done. Can you relate at all to that mask? Is that the one? If not, how about the third one, the well-off mask? Those who wear this mask put off the vibe that not only are they getting by, not only is everything fine, but they are thriving. Everything is perfect. They have their lives completely together. They're the ones who you look at and you think, man, they have the picture-perfect family. They're well-educated. They're well-off financially. They're well-groomed. Like, these are the people that you perceive wake up and look straight out of a fashion magazine from the second they roll out of bed. The people wearing this mask are the ones that you think, they don't have any messes in their lives, they don't need any help, they never have any questions, they are totally self-confident and totally in control. Vulnerability is not in their vocabulary and it doesn't need to be because they are like real-life Mary Poppins. They are practically perfect in every way. (laughs) But those who wear this mask might be the most exhausted of all because they're having to work so hard to maintain this well-off vibe. And sadly, because of this vibe, they're actually making themselves totally unrelatable. Because who wants to share their messiness, all the junk in their lives, with someone who they perceive to be perfect without blemish, without mess, right? Now, at this point, you might be saying, all right, I get it. 
quit piling on, I wear a mask, maybe I wear all three of these masks, (laughs) and whichever of these or whichever other masks you wear, you might be thinking, no problem, now that we've identified it, I'll just take the mask off, and that will be that, right? Problem solved. And if only it was that easy. (laughs) See, instead of trying to figure out how to take the mask off, we've got to look at the forces that are keeping it on. If you remember where this mask thing started, as we were talking about hiding. Hiding because of fear related to sin that we haven't dealt with. Now, that could be sin that we committed. That could be sin that was committed against us. But when we choose to hide or to ignore our sin, it remains unresolved. It's kind of like in our email inboxes when we just decide to ignore the email coming in. The emails continue to build and build and build. And after a while, it starts to feel kind of overwhelming. And you're like, I don't even think I can deal with that, right? The same is true of our unresolved sin. Not dealt with, it has this tendency to build and build and to become more and more overwhelming and we just don't want to deal with it. And it's a vicious cycle because the more overwhelming our unresolved sin feels, the more we feel paralyzed by fear, which prevents us from acknowledging and from dealing with that sin. And again, that fear is the fear of being fully known the fear of being found out for who we really are. And so we do the only thing that we know how to do in order to keep going. We put on a mask and we hide and we cover up the mess, right? But here's the reality. Masks wear out. They dull, they crack. And we can only hide our true selves for so long. Have you ever had a beach ball and try to shove it underwater and like hold it under there as long as you can? No matter how hard you concentrate, no matter how much effort you exert on that beach ball, eventually the thing's going to wiggle enough that it comes out of your hands and comes flinging up towards the surface with reckless abandon, right? It's the same with our mess. It's the same with our true selves. The mess is going to come out. (laughs) And so we're faced with a choice. Will we admit that we're living with a mask? (laughs) Will we admit the mess that the mask is hiding? Will we continue to perpetuate the facade Or will we choose to be real with God and with others? Will we choose to see our masks as invitations from God to move into something better, a freer, more authentic existence? And so imagine this choice that is before us, like that of traveling on a road, and we come back to that aforementioned fork in the road, and this fork in the road presents us with a choice, and the choice is this, to please or to trust, to please, or to trust. Because at the fork, there is a road sign, and the sign pointing one way reads pleasing God, and the sign pointing the other way reads trusting God. Now, which of these at first glance feels like the relationship that you have with God? Let's talk about pleasing God first. It sounds like a pretty good road to take, right? I mean, wouldn't God want me to do whatever I can to please him, to make him happy with me? And so if I'm able to to discipline myself, to live in such a way that that I can make God smile, that seems like a good thing. And standing at the fork in the road and and looking down that path, it it seems to be fairly well-worn. That ought to be a good sign, right? That many others have walked that path before us. And so we walk down that road, and after a short journey, we come to a door with a sign on it, and the sign reads, striving to be all God wants me to be seems like a pretty good motto. And so we put our hands on the doorknob with the word effort written on it. 
and we turn the knob, and we push open the door, and we enter into this massive room, and we're almost immediately greeted by a smiling hostess who says, welcome to the room of good intentions. She asks, how are you? And your entrance has quieted the room, and you can tell that the room full of people are kind of tuning in to your reply. You answer, well, I'm, I'm all right. Things could be better. I mean, I'm kind of struggling with some things at work, and there's some other areas of my life that just aren't consistent with who I know I'm supposed to be, and, and I just haven't been reading my Bible much lately, and, and the, the host literally covers your mouth, and, and she says, shh, that, that's, that's enough. <laughs> and she reaches into a bag, and she pulls out a mask and hands it to you and says, here, put this on and, and just go blend in. You hesitate for a second, but you notice that everybody else in the room has put on a mask as well, and so you figure, why not? What the heck? As you progress further into the room, you notice a banner that catches your eye. It reads, working on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God. It sounds like the verse, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And it it seems like a pretty tall task, but if all of these people are up to the challenge, if they can do it, I, I guess I can too. And so you think this place isn't half bad. All I have to do is look good, just keep my hand to the grindstone, work hard, so that that God will take notice of all this good work that I'm doing now, and that'll overshadow all the all the bad stuff, all the all the sin in my past and in my present. And then eventually, if I work hard enough, God and I will be so close. (laughs) I just know it. Well, it isn't long until you realize that in this room, the less people know about the real you, the better. The people who gain acceptance in this room are the ones who look and act like they have it all together. But over time, you realize you don't have it all together, and trying to look like you do is quite a bit of work. In fact, it feels like that's all you ever do, work. (laughs) Work hard to look good. Work hard to please God. Work hard to will yourself to stop sinning. And if you're honest, despite all this work, doesn't really feel like you've made a whole lot of progress. You don't feel any closer to God than when you stepped foot in that room in the first place. And you're actually starting to get a little discouraged, but you can't let anyone else in the room know. And so you tell yourself, I'm just going to buckle down. I'm going to work harder. Maybe someday I'll do enough to please God and I'll be able to achieve that intimate relationship with him that I've always wanted. More time passes, but despite your best efforts, you still sin. And with all of the effort you put into trying to not disappoint God, it seems like you don't have any energy left for actually trying to please God. In fact, you kind of wonder, like, where even is God in this room? It, It feels like he's always watching me. It feels like he's always judging me, but I've never actually encountered him. I guess he's ashamed to be seen with me because I can't seem to get my act together. And the shame you feel grows unbearable. And in a moment of despair, you remember, wait, wasn't there another path back there? Another road? And so while no one is looking, you sneak out the back and you return to that fork in the road. And you look up at the sign to refresh yourself on your other option. The sign says, trusting God. Trusting, you think. That sounds so passive. It seems so vague. Like, where's the effort in trusting? What is it that I'm actually supposed to do? (laughs) Maybe if I venture down that road, I'll find out. And so you do, and you realize pretty quickly that the road is a sharp contrast to the pleasing God road. 
It's not nearly as worn. It's not nearly as wide. In fact, trees have popped up in the middle of the road, and in spots, it's actually kind of hard to tell where the road is and where the road isn't. It's difficult to ignore thinking that maybe this is the wrong road. Like Maybe I need to go back to the pleasing God road and, and work harder. I mean, there should be more evidence of, of people traveling this road. It shouldn't be as tough to traverse if it's the right way to go, should it? Then another verse pops into the back of your mind where Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Could this be the path that leads to life, you wonder? And so you continue to navigate the road, and after a while, you finally come to another door with another sign. Whereas the sign above the other door read, striving to be all that God wants me to be, this one says, living out of who God says I am. And looking down at the doorknob, there's a word on it as well. Instead of effort, it says humility. Intriguing, you think. And so, turning the knob and and pushing the door open and entering the room, once again, you are greeted by a smiling hostess, and she says, welcome to the room of grace. And this seems all too familiar, and yet it feels totally different. How are you, she asks. Similarly to the last room, you notice that everyone in the room seems to have quieted upon your arrival. I'm fine, you say, wondering if all of the people in the room are judging you. Really? The hostess asks as she puts her hand on your shoulder. Okay, you say, not able to hold it back any longer. I'm not fine. I haven't been fine for a long time. I'm tired, I'm lonely, I'm sad most of the time, and I can't seem to make my life work. And I have so much guilt. If any of you knew half of my daily thoughts, you would send me right back out that door. So yeah, I guess I'm not fine. And turning back, towards the door in embarrassment to sneak out, all of a sudden a voice speaks up from the back of the room, and this voice yells, hey, is that all you got? I'll see your confusion, your guilt, your bad thoughts, and I will raise you compulsive sin and chronic lower back pain, and by the way, I'm also up to debt, or up to my ears in debt, and so you're going to have to do better than that if you want to play ball in my league. And the tension in the room breaks as laughter begins to spread. And the man connected to the voice in the back of the room sneaks through the crowd to greet you, opening his arms to give you a hug. And without a moment's hesitation, he and the hostess begin working to remove your mask. You're not going to need that here, they say. In fact, looking around, you realize that, that no one in this room is wearing a mask. Walking further into the room, you come across another banner. This one says, standing with God, working on my sin together. Really, you think? God standing with me in front of my sin, his arm around me as we look at my sin together? Like, Come on, there must have been a typo somewhere on that banner. Because in the other room, God seemed to steer clear of me because of my sin. In fact, I tried my hardest to avoid revealing my sin to God or to anyone because I was sure that it made me unworthy. If it could be true that God actually wants to stand with me in front of my sin, if it could be true that I don't have to hide, if it could be true that I don't need a mask, 
Well, that could change everything. And here's the beautiful part of that story. It's that it is true and that it can change everything. The room of grace is the room that Jesus came to invite us to live in. It's the type of relationship Jesus came to give us with God. In that room, people aren't perfect. They still screw up, but they're authentic enough to talk about it and to ask for help. In this room, we see a maturity and an integrity and, and a vitality and an authentic love and laughter that we didn't see in the other room. This room is different, but it's a good different. It's a freeing different. It's a room in which the hard doesn't have to be internalized, but it can be out in the open. It's a room in which we're in the hard together, a room that feels like family teaming with us instead of having to try to fight all of our sin, all of our struggle, all by ourselves. See, all this time, we thought that God wanted us to please Him, but what He actually wants for us is to trust Him. And here's the cool thing is that as we trust Him, we will please Him. Because to entrust yourself to someone requires relationship and requires faith. And those are the two things that God wants from us more than anything else. A loving relationship and a surrendered faith. In fact, Hebrews 11.6 says this. It says, without faith, it is actually impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He rewards those who earnestly seek to have a loving relationship with him. See, how we relate to God, our motives, they dictate what our experience with God will be like. If I think I need to please God, then striving to be all that God wants me to be will be extremely important. So I will exert endless effort working on my sin to try to achieve an intimate relationship with God to try to achieve godliness. But here's the thing, we can't achieve godliness. We can't please God into loving us because we are sinful creatures. Our actions will always fall short. They will never be entirely please-worthy. But here's the good news. It's that we don't have to achieve godliness. We don't have to achieve an intimate relationship with God. Jesus already achieved that for us. Just like a caterpillar has the DNA of a butterfly, even though it looks like a caterpillar, through the transforming power of Christ, we have been given the DNA of godliness, even though we look like sinners. Nothing we could do would make us more righteous than we are at this very moment, because we are in Christ. His righteousness is ours. And so instead of working so hard to try to achieve an intimate relationship with God, all we have to do is say yes to his invitations to trust him. See, if my motive is trusting God, then humbly living out of who God says I am will be extremely important. And instead of striving so hard, my action will just be standing with God, staying in relationship with God, working on my sin together. And the more we stand with God, the more we entrust ourselves to God, the more we are vulnerable with God. 
the more that He will reveal that He is already pleased with us beyond our wildest dreams. You know, the invitation to trust God is an invitation to freedom. And I want you to listen to how Paul talks about it in Galatians 5 in the message version of the Bible. You can feel free to follow along or feel free to close your eyes. He says this, says, Christ has set us free to live a free life, so take your stand. Never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. I am emphatic about this. The moment any one of you submits to any rule-keeping system, at that same moment Christ's hard-won gift of freedom is squandered. Now, I suspect you would never intend to do this, but this is what happens. When you attempt to live by your own religious plans and projects, you are cut off from Christ. You fall out of grace. Meanwhile, we expectantly wait for a satisfying relationship with the Spirit. For in Christ, neither our most conscientious religion nor disregard of religion amounts to anything. What matters is something far more interior, faith expressed in love. I love that invitation from God to take hold of the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus because he achieved it for us. We don't have to. You know, maybe you've been living in the room of good intentions. You've been wearing that mandatory mask. You've been working so hard to try to please God, but you just feel like you're falling short. Maybe you felt so enslaved to a life of rule-keeping and behavior management, trying to earn God's favor, hoping that through obedience, you'll eventually have an opportunity to have the trusting relationship with God that you've always wanted. And if so, you have turned trust and obey into obey and trust. And if that's where you've been living, wouldn't you much rather live in the room of grace, (laughs) the room where trusting God leads to obedience And yet the room where our disobedience doesn't disqualify us from experiencing God's love. Do you really want to live in the pleasing God room where God seems distant, where it seems like he's hidden, he's evaluating your worthiness strictly based on your performance? Or do you want to live in the trusting God room where God is right there with you? where he walks the path of growth with you, where he puts his arm around you and addresses the messes in your life with such love and with such grace. Which of these rooms do you think God prefers for you to live in? I mean, how do you think God prefers to relate to you? (laughs) There's one thing that being a parent has helped me understand in a different way. It's God's love for us. Because for me, as a father, it's, it's not my desire for my kids to obey me just because they're afraid of getting caught. <laughs> I don't want them to be so afraid of disappointing me that, that they pretend that everything in their lives is fine when it's not. No, my desire as their father is for them to understand that there's nothing they could ever do that would make me love them any more or any less because it's not about what they do. I don't love them for what they do. I love them for who they are. I love them because they're mine. And if I, as imperfect, as impatient, as flawed as I am, if I desire to love my children in that way, then how much more must our Father in heaven, who is perfect and patient and without flaw, how much more must he love you and I? The answer is an unfathomable, infinite amount. 
Thank you, Father, for your unimaginable love for us. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, thank you for this invitation to live and to relate to you differently. It is exhausting to wear a mask. It is exhausting to try to constantly be propping ourselves up. It is exhausting to work so hard to manage our image, all the while knowing that what we portray is not even who we are. God, it feels so different. It feels so against our defaults to believe that our love from you is truly unconditional, that it doesn't need to be earned, that our worth from you doesn't come from our performance or from our ability to live perfect lives. It is hard to accept. It's hard to believe. And so this morning, God, as we get ready to head into a new year, whatever we've done, whatever has been done to us, wherever we feel stuck, wherever we feel guilt or shame, God, may we open those places up to you. May we be honest and vulnerable. May we invite you into those places and may we experience you standing beside us with your arm around us. May we picture you gazing at us and gazing at our unresolved sin and gazing back at us, not with anger, not with judgment, but with so much love, with so much compassion for us. Crying with us at the mess that it is and saying to us, take my hand. We're going to fix this together. God, give us a new picture. Give us a new understanding of just how astonishing your love for us truly is. And God, as we embrace that kind of love, may it lead us to trust you, to not waste any more time trying to please you, but to live freely in response to the crazy amount of love that you have for us. God, envelop us in that love this morning in the days to come, in the weeks to come, in the months to come, in the years to come. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do for us, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.